Thank you for turning on the Why This Times Talk podcast. In this edition, we're previewing the upcoming Times Talk entitled The Russia-Ukraine Crisis. What's next? I'm joined by phone today by Georgia College history professor Bill Risch. Thank you. Bill Risch, thank you for coming back to the Why This Times Talk podcast to talk about the escalation of this years-long war between Ukraine and Russia. Thank you very much. Bill, I know we had you on here recently as tensions were escalating, uh, and we asked this question then, but I want to ask it again to start off this conversation. Uh, why does this war, a world away, carry significance for Americans? This war, unfortunately, is highly significant for Americans, and I would say that it threatens us all. We have to remember first that Ukraine gave up its nuclear arsenal in 1994 in exchange for guarantees over that country's territorial integrity and sovereignty. The United States and Russia and Britain and France agreed to this, as well as China later. Secondly, we must remember that NATO expansion eastward and political developments in Ukraine have led to a confrontation between NATO and Russia already. The other thing we should note is that the conflict that has developed, and that's a euphemism, the brazen and unprovoked invasion of a peaceful country by another country in the name of a conflict that often has been staged and provoked by Russia itself, has led to responses by the United States that will produce responses by Russia. This includes cyber warfare, possibly attacks on banks, because our attempts to cut off Russia from the world financial system will lead to countermeasures by Russia. Russia is very good at cyber warfare, and they have not even started yet. They've done quite a bit to Ukraine itself. They can come here. I would like the audience to remember that in the past year, actually, Russians hacked one pipeline and caused problems here. In Georgia itself, gasoline shortages in May of 2021. My final point, probably, is that the conflict in Ukraine, the invasion, as I have said, has brought about Russians taking over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant and its surrounding territory, which is a potential environmental hazard. We have the Russians bombing civilian targets. We have a situation of potentially millions of refugees going into Europe. There is a refugee crisis. There's a security crisis. There's a cybersecurity crisis that I'm afraid will eventually lead to confrontation between NATO and Russia. The United States needs to get prepared. The United States needs to think about what it is doing. And Americans need to wake up. I used to be polite with, with your audience, Daniel. They need to wake up now. Well, in that sense, I mean, would you say that perhaps the United States and Russia have actually been at a war, just not one that's been using arms for years now? Absolutely. If you look at it, there were sanctions imposed over the Russian annexation of Crimea, which was illegal and brazen. 
this has been going on for the past eight years, really. Russia has experienced sanctions from the United States. We've seen uh, an increased U.S. military presence in Eastern Europe. We also see the delivery of arms to Ukraine. Actually, seven years ago, this was unthinkable. In 2015, the United States had ruled out delivering arms to Ukraine. At this point, we literally have the United States advertising its arms shipments to Ukraine. So, yes, this conflict has been going on for quite some time. Yeah. So, in other words, uh, economic warfare between our country and Russia, uh, cyber warfare between our country and Russia, um, even uh, information and propagandistic uh, warfare between our two countries ongoing at this point um, uh, for years now. Yes, and I must emphasize that Putin has been acting with a sense of impunity. There may be Russian grievances about being neglected by the rest of the world, and I've emphasized that in my previous interviews. But he's been using this to try and mobilize his popularity and hold his regime together to the point where he feels like he can do whatever he wants to. For instance, when it came to Ukraine and the Minsk Accords, a peace treaty more or less, signed in 2015, was supposed to bring about the reincorporation of Donbass into Ukraine under Russian conditions, more or less. And in recent weeks, he actually told Zelensky and the Ukrainian government that they had to accept those Minsk Accords, whether they liked it or not, and he used a reference that made fun of rape. So could you imagine, he's basically telling the Ukrainian government except being raped by me. This is the level of impunity and incivility that comes from Putin's mouth. And I think Monday's lecture on Ukrainian history should be a glaring example of how he has combined in the most dangerous fashion, cherry-picked history, Russian propaganda, disinformation, and conspiracy theories generated within Russia itself and sometimes propagated in the United States and abroad to justify the bombing of civilian and military targets in Kiev and every city of Ukraine. Every city of Ukraine was bombed on Wednesday. Every airport was bombed west to east. And he did it in the name of a military operation to defend Donbass. Since when was an obscure military airstrip in Ivano-Frankivsk in the west of Ukraine, since when was it threatening Donbass? It didn't. Now, as this crisis unfolds in real time, what are you watching for in the days between this taping at midday Friday in Wednesday when you co-facilitate the Times Talk. And when you talk about what you'll be watching, can you give a, um, a reason why they are important to a broader context uh, about what's unfolding now? In the next couple of days, I'm really worried that Kiev is going to fall to the Russians. It does look like they have an advantage in terms of air power. It looks like they have an advantage in terms of overall numbers of soldiers that are armed. It looks like they have better equipment. Again, 
referring to cyber attacks, the use of electronic means of waging war. They haven't even really used them yet. So the Ukrainians are at a disadvantage already. And it's a question of whether or not they can slow down the Russian advancement. And unfortunately with Kiev, I don't know if they're going to be ready enough. So this is significant to what's coming up later because basically we may see the toppling of a regime and perhaps even the murder of a sitting Ukrainian president who was elected by 72% of all voters in 2019, whose political party had won 54% of the electorate in 2019. This is a government that is legitimate by a vast majority that Ukraine had never experienced in its history, an absolute majority in parliament by one party. A president elected defeating an incumbent by a tidal wave landslide, 72% to 25%. So this is what I see. I see the, the toppling of a regime and the death of Ukrainian leaders, the decapitation of a regime, and the establishment of a puppet regime. A puppet regime which, how durable it will be, I, I highly question because I must tell you that there are friends of mine from the left to the right, and they all agree that this is going to be a disaster sooner or later for Russia itself. In, there have been commentators who have said that this is an end to a world order that was established after World War II. Can you begin to help us understand what order in perhaps all of Europe or perhaps the entire world will look like as we're watching these events unfold? You raise a very interesting question, and this brings me back to my time in Ukraine. In 2003, when the Iraq war began and a Ukrainian reporter named Taras Protsik was killed by American fire in Baghdad, and there was a memorial for him and for another journalist that had been killed under other circumstances. And there was a historian speaking at this memorial who said that George Bush has undermined the entire post-war era, the entire post-war order, by what he has done with Iraq and declaring unilaterally war on Iraq itself. So in some ways, this started much earlier and the irony is I discovered this in Ukraine itself. Unfortunately, in the following years, it didn't get better. And I must uh, also add that some could regard the U.S. NATO-led attack on Yugoslavia as the start of this, too, because that led to the establishment of an independent state named Kosovo that had separated from Serbia. And Russia was left out of both historical developments. It was practically ignored when it came to Yugoslavia. And I remember the furious responses in the Russian Duma because I was in Ukraine then and I received Russian TV broadcasts in 1999. And they were left out of the, the decision to go to war in Iraq in 2003. And then you see the expansion of NATO the next year in 2004. You see in 2008 plans to bring in Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. So I would have to say that, no, this didn't start it. We have to look at a longer history. 
And in the days, weeks, and months to come, what questions should Americans be asking themselves as they watch another chapter of this conflict in Eastern Europe? I'll give you one example that sort of occurred today. At least on the social networks, Ukrainians are spreading the urgent plea for NATO to declare Ukraine a no-fly zone and to prevent Russian planes from going in and bombing people, military and civilian. I raised this question, too, and one friend who is quite an expert on Russian history and Soviet history, he said, you understand that NATO cannot get involved in such an operation because that would involve NATO possibly shooting down Russian planes. And that President Biden has ruled out any conflict between NATO and Russia. So the question is, that Americans should be asking is, are they ready for a confrontation between NATO and Russia? Can that confrontation be avoided? And third, can they avoid that confrontation with Russia by sacrificing the lives of 40 million people in Ukraine? And this is a country next door to Europe that's going to cause problems for all of Europe, the vacation spot of at least some Americans. This is a conflict which, if Putin sees an opportunity here, perhaps because of his sense of impunity, he could seek military action in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. He could try and go close to the Polish border, bring up troops there. Who's to say that he won't allow Western Ukraine to be part of his sphere of influence, too? It's no longer about Donbass. It's about the whole country and exterminating it, frankly. And in our last conversation, one of the final questions was about the ratcheting up of tensions and the fear of any misstep and what the consequences could be. With that in mind, what is your outlook now? Well, this is what I will tell you. The only thing that I can see that might compensate for the lack of NATO inaction will be Ukrainians on the ground fighting a partisan war against Russia, which is very likely, and resisting a puppet regime which I think will fall like a house of cards. If the Russians made fun of the U.S.-backed regime in Kabul collapsing, just wait until they see what happens to Kiev. I guarantee it. But also, the other thing is that there is one hope that I still see in that Russians are protesting the war and that there are grave misgivings amongst people in the Russian establishment even, amongst some retired generals, among some active generals. At least some vague rumors of that are going around. And there's one very pro-Kremlin historian who loves to speak on the social networks, and even he too, for a moment, questioned the logic of the war, it seemed, and then he sort of backed away as if you know he was protecting his job. But still... There probably are many Russians who see this war as totally senseless. And there was a recent article in Open Democracy Russia about this, about this whole operation being a senseless war for Russia, a senseless war waged by Putin. Could this lead to a palace coup? Could this lead to a nonviolent revolution in Russia? A nonviolent revolution in Russia, I doubt it, but a palace coup is a possibility. I can't exclude it.
could happen. So there are some things that may go on that may change the situation and avoid the confrontation between NATO and Russia, but I'm not sure. Well, those are all the questions I have. Uh, I do want to turn it over to you now. Uh, if there's anything that I did not ask you about and you'd like to bring to this conversation, or if there's anything you'd like to go back and place a greater emphasis on. All I would say is, I would urge people to protest this war and to help non-government agencies and even government agencies in Ukraine that are defending Ukraine. And if it has to be people themselves to do it, that's fine. There is, set up by the National Bank of Ukraine, an online site for collecting donations for the Ministry of Defense. Because it is an English language website, I will just go ahead and recommend it personally. But that is something that I wish to leave the audience with. Because if the leaders aren't going to do something, we have to do it ourselves. Bill Rich, I want to thank you for, uh, again, coming back to the Why This Times Talk podcast and talking about history as it unfolds in our lifetime. Thank you very much. Thank you.